Welcome to Free For All, an episode-by-episode podcast about one of the most endlessly fascinating television shows ever made, The Prisoner. Each week we'll be taking an in-depth look at the 17 episodes of The Prisoner. I'm Chris Bainbridge, Senior Lecturer in Broadcast and Creative Media, and I'm also a Prisoner devotee. And I'm Kai Ross, a film writer, restaurateur, and Chris's mate, which is how I got this gig. (laughs) So, we're now on to this schizoid man. Schizoid man. Yes, after the uh, soul-crushing denouement of uh, Free For All, the the episode, not the podcast, um, (laughs) some fun, Mm. and a lot of fun. This is one of those kind of plot episodes. It's the... The kind of thing that they would have pitched out to other writers and said, right, we need some a really good, strong episode here. Give us your best ideas. Mm-hmm. And this is a great idea. Um, a lot of this about in the early, in the sort of mid-60s, these espionage things. Maybe just writers heard the words double agent and just <laughs> yes. couldn't, couldn't get yes. them to What if there were two, like double agents? Uh, Steed, however many episodes of the, uh, the Avengers, Steed ends up playing. <laughs> There's two of them. Um, I'm sure it's about three Star or four. Trek did it, didn't they, with uh, the enemy within? Of course, yeah, the f- famous one. Shatner playing against himself. Shatner v Shatner. Shatner v Shatner. So that would have been around the same time, actually. Yeah, sixty-six. Do you think when when was that fo- that technology did that sort of take off? The idea of an actors being able to play against themselves in the same frames. How far does I that think, go back? Well, to be honest with you, um, I, I don't know the actual specifics, but. I'm guessing this technique is static camera and um, an optical process where you kind of expose, you know, half the the shot, leave the other half unexposed and then expose that when you shoot it again with the actor in in position. You can see there is a variation of lighting slightly on the crease line. Yeah. Um, But it's, you know, I, I don't think you'd notice that generally on television, especially black and white television. No, no, no. Of course, no. in high def, you can see it a little bit. But, yes, uh, the Blu-ray pause button is no friend <laughs> yeah. to this episode. <laughs> and I think with, with what they were working on, I think I, I think that would be, that an optical process would probably be the, the better way to do this. Yeah. But that, those optical processes have been around for, for years. Didn't George Melier do something like that? Yes, yes, he did. Um, the Four Troublesome Heads, I think, is the English translation. Four Troublesome Heads. Four Troublesome Heads. And that was 1898. So that was like the year H.G. Wells wrote The War of the Worlds to the context. <laughs> and that was a lovely little piece where Melier appears on screen and has various double exposures, triple exposures, you know, four exposures of his head appearing in, in various places. So that technology had already existed for best part of 60 years oh yeah so it wasn't new technology it was just improving advancements but of course by the time um back to the future 2 comes out well yeah you know you can see that technology has moved on i mean it wasn't perfect even in 1989 uh, 89 but you know we've mastered it now with yes. green screen and and over you know with the technology that we have today and by 1967 they'd already mastered the art of having another actor been the same shot, but turning his face away yes. as he's about to walk through a door. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, in this episode, Frank Meyer earning his money. Oh, yeah. In this episode. <laughs> <laughs> but um, talking about Star Trek, um, and I'm sure it's pretty much common knowledge that there's a season two episode of The Next Generation, which is also called The Schizoid Man. A, a direct reference? It's a, I'm not a, yeah. a Star Trek guy, so. Well, this is season two. Episode... Oh, six? Yes! <laughs> and originally, there's a, there's a character in, in The Schizoid Man called Dr. Ira Graves, who's played by W. Morgan Shepherd. You might know as a, as a famous British actor who went over to America. His son, Mark Shepherd, was in things like Supernatural, and he was in Doctor Who. Oh, yeah. Um, he, he was playing Dr. Ira Graves. He was this like, super genius. And originally wanted McGowan uh, to play that role. Did he... Did he actually? Did he specifically turn it down? He said, "Oh, what an interesting! Oh, I, I know, know, I know what they've done here." There's another link to Star Trek: Next Generation. There's an episode in season six of Star Trek: Next Generation, season six, yes. um, called "Frame of Mind." Yes, and this is one where this is an episode where Commander Riker is convinced by, or starting to be convinced by, an alien race that he's not who he thinks he is. 
<laughs> that he is, um, he, he, in his mind, he is the commander of the Starship Enterprise. But actually, he's not. And it's all a delusion in order to kind of break him and break down the secrets of, of their mission. Yes. So it's a, very similar. The Frame of Mind episode is very similar to Schizoid Man. Didn't he make a, a not particularly good film with Johnny Depp, which was almost that plot? The Transcendence. Oh yeah, Chris yeah. Nolan's. It's, I mean, it's deep. Not, he made it. It's not a. It's not a new trope, is it, for mm. science fiction? The body swap or the body, you know, the body double and all that kind of stuff. The man who haunted himself. Yes, with Roger. With Moore, Roger Moore. Friend, Roger, my Roger old Moore. my old pal Roger Moore. Yeah, yeah. Um, his probably probably his greatest performance. I mm. think he would he would have said that that was his best ever performance, and it was. It was wonderful. Well, you you were very lucky in that you got to know Sir Roger. No is a bit much. <laughs> uh, me to sit with and uh, enjoy very much enjoy the company of mm. uh, Sir Roger Moore. Yes, he came to one, he came to my restaurant mm. uh, a couple of times for lunch, and we didn't do lunches. So I you put them on specially for him. Well, they said, you know, uh, do you do lunch? Uh, no, that's ah, Roger Moore. We'll see you tomorrow at one o'clock. <laughs> and um, of course, he could not have been more charming. You know, mm. don't meet your heroes yeah. unless they're Roger Moore. Brilliant. In which case, I suggest you should have got that in about 10 years ago. <laughs> um, but he was just the most delightful company. Couldn't have been nicer. Called out the chef, thanked him for the meal, sat with us. We chatted for... I was just... What an absolute... I was just vibrating with, with, with Being delight. Being such a, a, like a saint and the persuaders. Oh, it was... It was, it was but is it, is, I remember you telling me that you had the cookbook... Yeah, yeah, if you can get hold of this on eBay, it's the most spectacular thing. The White Elephant Cookbook. Back in the 70s, 73 it was, there's a club, very famous club called the White Elephant, where all the famous people went. And the owner uh, decided to just put a cookbook together and asked everyone who, all the members, to submit a recipe and try and get some lovely illustrations made. And they were going to put a book together and raise money for the NSPCC, which they did. And the illustrations are out of this world <laughs> they are it's the most extraordinary thing to to wade through mm. and of course it's that specific vintage of celebrity as well you've got sort of harry seekham and spike milligan mm. people like, like michael parkinson now <laughs> spike milligan yes. uh, mohammed ali today. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah you got robert shaw was in there uh connery uh, <laughs> just some of the things that roger moore told me which i i can't Repeat. Oh, <laughs> I know. I'll, never mind. I'll tell you later. I'll tell you later. <laughs> uh, but Roger Moore was in there, and he'd submitted a couple, couple of recipes, actually. So I brought this thing down as a sort of, do you remember this? Yeah. Uh, and he said, oh, I can't remember this at all. Guy. <laughs> uh, and um, so we sat down, and we just flicked through, and he just basically went through, like, page by page. Oh, Geraldo, I remember him. And, oh, this fellow's a bit of a dark horse. And, uh, and uh, oh, look at that. And this taps, what's, what's Sean put in there? Oh, typical him. <laughs> and can you imagine that? Yeah, can you imagine yeah. my, the, my, my... I bet you were pinching yourself, weren't you? Oh, God, it was an out-of-body experience. Just, just, and, you, and then you sort of forget for a second that who he was. Yeah. And then, then you'd remember. Yeah. It's like, oh, my God. But isn't it lovely sometimes where you can meet these people and they're exactly how you want them to be? More so sometimes. Yeah. You think, yeah. Oh, thank oh, What a delight. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not sure if it was actually called Schizoid Man to start or if there was a different type. But what? Schizoid? Schizoid? Where does yeah. schizoid come from? Well, apart from the King Crimson song, yeah. <laughs> there's, it's actually a personality disorder. Uh, it's, a, it's a condition uh, which people avoid social activities and, and, tr- and avoid people, avoid social interaction with other people. Oh, I did that. Like um, an all, <laughs> a, a limited range of emotional expression. So, Well, oh, I suppose yeah. we'd better do a, a quick synopsis, really, for anyone who's... Um... Over to you. Well, uh, essentially, a new plan by the village, just as Machiavellian as ever. They decide to drug uh, number six and take him out of action under a state of hypnosis and try and make him, turn him into a, into a different person. They try to make him, they make him go from right to left-handed, is that mm. correct? They somehow alter his diet. Yeah, they kind of program his brain, don't they? Yes. But- uh, uh, and the plot is that they're going to, basically try and destroy him from within and convince him that he's somebody else. Not just somebody else, but somebody else who has to impersonate himself. 
and this, break and make himself part of the, and that's the plot. And quite clever. It is quite clever. It's almost, but it's not, it doesn't stand up to a great deal of scrutiny. No, and we can come to it, but I, I, I mean, it's quite clever from the perspective of, of writing. Yes. Is that you, you take away the essence of somebody, who, who somebody is, mm. and, you, and you say, no, you're not who you thought you were. And you can see McGowan's performance is, is sublime. Yes. Because he starts to crumble. And you can see he starts to question well, I mean, it's very reality. It's it's such a fascinating idea to mm. actually how do you how do you break somebody? How, can you could you actually eventually, if you're persistent enough and you mm. just c- carry on with this, can you actually convince somebody that they are somebody else? And pr- with all the tools at their disposal, including threading wire through cigarettes, yes, yeah. they <laughs> stop at nothing. But it's a similar kind of trope, isn't it? Mm. Where it, it's about identity and loss of identity. Of somebody taking over your identity and becoming you, yeah, which is that it, it can do. I mean, psychologically, seeing somebody pretending to be you, they've taken everything from you. Yes, they can take away your possessions. They can take away your, you know, your car and your house. But taking away your identity is so much more potent. Yeah, and identity is one of the big, big themes of the prison mm. throughout, isn't it? Mm. I think that's that's essentially what he's. He's resisting and he's standing up to fight for his own identity, his mm. own and his 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 right to us to assign his own identity and not have it dictated to by any other Tom, Dick, Harry, or two. Mm. So we're privileged this week to have a special guest with us. We have Jane Merrow, actress, star of stage and screen, star of. Uh, most of the things we grew up on, basically. Yes. Um, Jane had a, a marvellous sort of, sort of second career, I suppose, or sort of second phase when she went to America. Mm. So, I mean, when, once we were teenagers, we started getting into the 60s stuff. Mm. There she was. But she'd already been in the stuff we were watching when we were kids anyway. Yeah, the yeah. Six Million Dollar Man, Airwolf, The Incredible Hulk. She was, she was, I don't think there were many shows that we watched that she wasn't in. And we are very, very delighted to have her here with us now. Good morning. Thank you so much for doing this. Lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you too. What was your initial reaction to the script of Schizoid Man? Good script. Uh, I particularly like the fact that we had such an interesting relationship. Mm. And also quite a challenging script because I had to remember all those blooming cards. <laughs> <laughs> well, you weren't mind reading. <laughs> no, don't blow the illusion. <laughs> yeah, like, Patrick and I got on pretty well, but... I wasn't, I wasn't that far into it, <laughs> that we could read each other's minds for real. Well, were you looking forward to yeah. working with him again? Because you, I think was this, you did three Danger Men uh, yeah. with him before, so was it great Danger to be Man. working with him again? No, yeah, I was looking forward to working with him again. I loved working with him. I absolutely, I really did love it. He was one of the most thrilling actors I've ever worked with. He and, and O'Toole, probably the, my top favourites. I wish we had memories like that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> So we note that in the script, your character is one of the only characters to actually have a, a name rather than a number. Oh, I didn't realise that. I knew I had a number, but I didn't know nobody else had a name. Oh, I don't. That's interesting, actually. Yeah, you were Alison. Did you ever ask anybody and find out why, like any of the writers still alive? <laughs> yeah, Terence Freely um, is, is, is no longer. Still alive? Terence Freely's ex-directory, I'm afraid. He's um, about 20 years ago. Mm. I thought I would have thought so because he was he was older at the time. You know, he's older than me certainly. But we noticed that um, Patrick McGowan liked working with people he'd worked with uh, before, Danger Man, uh, various other shows. Do you think he, yeah. he liked having that kind of professional family around him? I don't know if it was so much a family thing as so much. No, I mean I don't think Patrick was that. He, well, I think he was like that possibly with his crew. I think yes, family for crew. I mean, he always had Dave Tomlin for his first because Dave really understood him and, and knew how to work brilliantly with him. I mean, he was a wonderful, wonderful guy, Dave. Yeah. And as you know, Spielberg, he went on to work for the famous director, Spielberg. So, yeah, so I think crew-wise, he liked to have people he was familiar with, comfortable with and could work with. Actors, I'm not so sure. I think, yes, if he'd worked with an actor and he liked working with them or he felt he could get something from them or that he could bring something to the show, yes. But I don't think he particularly worked with actors just because he thought, you know, I'm comfortable or I like working with this actor. He wanted, his, his priority was always the, the, the 
excellent or the quality of the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but you two have, have a, a very good chemistry on screen together. Did you, yeah, was that good. like that off, off, off camera as well? Oh, yes. I mean, I, yeah, Patrick wasn't a man that you got to know easily. I mean, I never, I can't honestly, have, I would never have called him a friend because I didn't know him well enough. To, it was a very warm, you know, not warm, but a very good acquaintance and a very good professional friend. But as, as far as anything beyond that, no. I think it was just all on camera what we had together. I mean, what we had together on camera, I think, was unusual and quite, quite extraordinary. Simply because, you know, when you get that kind of chemistry with another actor, it either, it either happens or it doesn't happen. And you can both be the most talented actors on, work, on the earth. But if there's no chemistry there, the, the screen is dead. Mm-hmm. It takes across. And that's what the audiences respond to. They, they may not know that consciously, but that's what turns them on and what, what gets, them, gets them excited. Mm-hmm. And before I first worked with Patrick, <laughs> everyone said, oh, you won't like working with him. He's very difficult. He's very, he doesn't like women at all. He can't stand actresses. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> he has no time for them at all. I thought, all right, well, so long as I know my lines and could hit my marks, I should be all right. <laughs> <laughs> and we, the first time I day I worked with him was a very complicated scene in the first Danger Man we did. And it was fast dialogue because he loved to keep the dialogue going very, very basic, very pacey, very energetic. And we started off, you know, circled each other like a couple of wild animals and then, you know, plowed into it and knew immediately that it was all going to work. And, uh, yeah, from there on it took off. And I think that's what carried over into all the shows I did with him. And it carried certainly over into The Prisoner. And I suppose the only moment of real intimacy, if you would like to call it that, was at the moment at the end of the show when she says, I'm sorry, I wouldn't do it, I wouldn't have done it. There was a connection there. You know, a real connection. Uh, but off camera, no. You know, he was he was a professional actor. I was a professional actress. That was it. I gather, though, from a, a I did a prisoner convention two or three years ago. I met his daughter Catherine. It was a lovely woman, absolutely charming. And of course, Patrick's first priority, I think, in his entire life was his wife number one, and then the rest of his daughters number two, and then probably his work. And she said to me that he came home the night we'd first worked together on the first Danger Man and said, I finally think I've found some actress I can work with. (laughs) (laughs) I was very glad she told me that. (laughs) Was that your first time in Port Merion? Yes. What do you think? Oh, fantastic. It's such an extraordinary place. Mm I'd read up about it before I went down because I'd heard it's all Port Marion, Port Marion. It's this amazing Italian type village that is, you know, in Wales and so on. And I'd, I didn't know Wales that well at, at the time. I, I knew Wales a lot better afterwards because I had an uncle who was living down there in Brecon, Beacons. And I used to go up and down regularly then. But up to that point, didn't really know it at all. And I, I thought it was an amazing place. And what they, how they had used it was a stunning, mm. yeah. Funnily enough, I got to know Bernie Williams um, when we were both living in LA. And, you know, Bernie was the production manager on The Prisoner. And um, he told me this really funny story. They'd built a very complicated sort of machine to be Rover. And some bright spark, I mean, it was a beautiful machine. It was remoted, remote control operated and everything. And some bright spark drove it into the sea. <laughs> <laughs> They had no rover. (laughs) I didn't know what to do. And Patrick came up with the idea of this great big white, you know, balloon type ball. And it was an easy fix. I think they really lucked out on that. Spent money building this machine. So anyway, that, that, that happened earlier on before I ever arrived on the scene. What can you tell us about Pat Jackson? Because he directed this episode and he worked with you later on Man in a Suitcase as well. I, I can't tell you that he was a, a director that I really connected that closely with. He was a very business-like director, very good and everything. But I didn't have any kind of, I don't have any strong memories of him at all, funnily enough. No. I mean, I have a lot of strong memories of people like Quentin Lawrence and Don Chaffee both of whom were wonderful film directors before they drifted, you know, into television when the British film industry virtually died mm. after the 50s, 60s. Well, 50s, really, a great industry that we had, you know, 
really great industry. And then we sort of drifted into television. So we inherited all these wonderful directors from filmmaking. I'm talking about directors who are what I would call real working man directors, who are real nuts and bolts guys who understood the, not only, they, they understood the business of making film. You know, some people might have said, well, they weren't really artists like Joe Losey, but uh, I think they were in their own way. And I know Patrick felt the same way because he, he worked with Don Chaffee quite a bit. But Pat Jackson, I have to be honest with you, I don't really have any strong memories of him. It's not awful. We didn't, obviously didn't make a great impression on each other. We noticed in the episode, there's quite a lot of Americanisms in this episode. The terms like Southpaw and the, and the flapjacks for the pancakes. Just wondering oh, right. But funnily enough, you know, I never hear the term flapjacks when I'm in America particularly. I think they're more like a... Welsh or, you know, Scottish. It's just Anton Rogers kind of lifts up the cloche. Flapjacks? And so, no, those are pancakes. <laughs> yes. No, <laughs> I going on? Pancakes, you know, we have in America. Hmm. But I, I don't really ever hear them called flapjacks. I don't know where that came from. I don't know why that ever sort of stuck yeah. there. What, what uh, Anton Rogers, he was another one. Did, did, was he, what was he like? Oh, he was stupid. I liked him. I liked Anton. We worked twice together, but I can't remember what the other thing was. I have no, I really, I did so much work in those days. Mm. Yes, you yes. Know, one job after the other. And I know Anton and I had worked together on something else, but I honestly can't tell you what it was. But he was a lovely man. Very talented. Yeah, I liked Anton. The- and I think that we heard the story that... Um, Patrick had had Leo McKern back a couple of times as number two and had actually almost driven him to a nervous breakdown. True or not, I don't know. That was the episode just before the one you made, was the one where they were just driving each other insane in a a box. Yeah, (laughs) yes. Well, Patrick would have won that battle, I'm sure. Yes. I mean, he's real staying power. There's no question about that. (laughs) So we've got a question here from one of our listeners. Uh, When you were filming the episode, did you have any sense of how groundbreaking the show was or would go on to be? Or did it all just feel a little bit bonkers? No, I think it, it, I mean, I had just, I'd done a production of of 1984 Hmm. for the BBC earlier before this. And it kind of reminded me strongly of that. And I thought, my God, you know, Patrick is really drifting into the future. And it's very Orwellian. Very, uh, that's, that's what struck me about it, that it was a very Orwellian script and that this was how he had some feeling for our future. And I don't think he's far wrong, to be honest. No, no. Well, funnily enough, we were talking about Orwell last episode, weren't we? Um, not just 1984, yeah. but themes of Animal Farm as well within Yeah, that our current world seems to be best suited to dictators at the moment. Yeah, they're having a field day at the moment, aren't they? We've got, we've got a couple of, two or three out there. <laughs> major civilizations <laughs> yes it's become fashionable again <laughs> who knew well hopefully not too fashionable we don't want that kind of thing coming no, you know, you do you do are you surprised at how well this is it's not just kind of lasted it's just kind of aged beautifully and it still has just adherents and devotees so many years later no. I'm honestly actually not surprised because I've always said that the two things that really don't date or, or have a chance, one thing won't ever date, which is period. That date period doesn't date. Modern film can date. Future film generally doesn't if the people who created it have the brains to do something really, you know, sensible and creative and don't make it silly. So I, I'm not surprised that this hasn't dated. I'm not surprised at all. And I'm not surprised that it hasn't, that it's now got a whole new audience thanks to the internet. I mean, my whole career has been completely revived by the internet, really. It's been amazing. And thank you very much. Um, uh, but I'm delighted, you know, whereas Danger Man, which I loved, I think it was a wonderful series. Let's face it, that is dated to some extent because it was based in the, in the 60s. It's a 60s show, and now it is a sort of period show that is a bit too close to us yeah. to, to, to really hold its, its thing. But The Prison, I don't think we'll ever date. And also, of course, it was made in colour, mm. and it just had a great look to it. It really did. And that was a lot due to the location and Patrick's imagination, the art direction and everything. So final, final question, what would you say was your fondest memory of working on the show? Oh, I think the scene with him when we're doing the cards, 
you know, the first scene we opened when they're, they're doing the mind trick, you know, that, that was fun. Mm. I mean, if, that was the fun part of working with Patrick, that, you know, that it, it was like, as I said, the, the, the great things I learned about him and O'Toole and Catherine Hepburn was the inner energy that drives their performances. They can be very quiet, they can be very still, but that, that energy is still bubbling away inside. They're never flat. You're always waiting for the next thing they're going to say or do. And that was the thing with Patrick. That was a fun scene, I think. I think right? you seemed to relax him in that, in that scene. He was a lot more comfortable with you than he was with many of the other actors and actresses throughout the rest of the series, just in that lovely yeah. one scene. Yeah. Yeah. As you said, I, I, you know, I've got nothing but good things and good memories of him. And, and thrilled to have had the on, honour, frankly, of working with him because he was a fine, fine actor. So thank you very much to Jane Merrow for her time. And what, what a lovely lady as well. Yeah, yeah, no, it's lovely. There are so many uh, people in the cast and crew of The Prisoner, of course, because it's over 50 years old, have passed. Yeah. And it's just absolutely a proper thrill to actually speak to people who are stood on the set and were and you, the people you remember. Because mm. I think Darren Nesbitt and Jane Merrow are, pretty much two of the only lead actors left. Yeah, so it's wonderful to be able to actually touch base yeah. with, with someone who was there. And uh, oh, I, just, I, I, I got shivers then. That was, that was lovely. I hope you enjoyed that. Going back to what we talked about previously, especially in the previous episode, um, there's quite a few Americanisms again in this episode. If you look at all the ITC shows, so, you know, uh, Man in a Suitcase, uh, Champions, uh, Department S, uh, and Strange Report. They all have American leads or American actors who are prominent within the show. And I wonder if this is a conscious effort by Lou Grade. Oh, I think for, so. For overseas sales. Yeah, I think it was almost like a, a, he needed that hook. Yeah, and you've got Stuart Damon, haven't you, and uh, Joel Fabiani and uh, yes. Department S. The ultimate one, Tony Curtis, of course, of course in, the in Persuaders. Persuaders. Yeah, and, and I, I wonder if this is maybe Lou Grade's kind of input rather than McGowan's. I wonder if Lou Grade said, "Yeah, I'm going to give you the money, but I want some." Yes, you know. I don't know. I think McGowan was savvy enough to he would have wanted as big an audience as possible for this. The reason, one of the reasons I say this, is because we have an American uh, number two, don't we, in the episode "Living in Harmony." Yes. David Bauer. He, yeah, he was a classic sort of uh, American living in Britain at the time who turned up in a... He was in Torture Garden, one of the amicus ones. He, in fact, he's in lots of things. He's, yeah. he's almost like this kind but of... He was born in Chicago. Oh, yeah? Yeah, so he, so he is the only... The only American number two. Yeah, I, I wonder if that's Lou Grade's input. You know, saying you've got to have these American touchstones. Um... Possibly. I think maybe not too British would have been mm. a thing. I don't think any of them were, really. I think. A, yeah, but, like there are, you, yeah, but the thing is, if you spoke to an American, I'm, uh, you know, there's a lot of British isms mm. in this, in, in The Prisoner. It, it's, it's more a kind of a British energy, I suppose. Mm. The, the, the look of it, the genteelness. Mm. The, it's, I mean, the whole facade of it is basically a, a, an entire world made out of afternoon tea. Yes. In terms of the way everyone dresses yeah, and yeah. That, that sort of thing, which could only be not even British, but English. Yes. Um, yeah. And yeah. it's specifically so. But within that, of course, you can still have little, like you say, touch tones that yeah. reach out to, that allow an, a, a global audience, or particularly an American audience, to but sort of. An, ah, I've got an it. English show filmed in Wales in an Italian village. Created by an American Irishman from Sheffield. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a very, very international. Yeah, very show, international as Guy Dolman said, <laughs> I think. So there's one thing one thing we need to talk about which has been bugging me a little bit. Oh yeah, February the tenth. February the tenth. Now <laughs> going back with the luxury of the internet and being able to look at February the tenth, which fall on a Wednesday. Oh, in, the, in in real life. Well, if if you look at the if you look at the calendar in because there's a, a little bit of foreshadowing, isn't there, in the scene with Alison and Number Six? Yes. Let which, me take a photo, which which is almost certainly going to be a plot device. It's later going on. to be a plot point. Almost, I, I would say Chekhov's gun, but it's. Yeah. <laughs> but um, she takes a photo, and yeah, you can prominently see the. Uh, it's almost a photo calendar. of the, of the, the calendar, calendar clock, isn't it? Yeah. Wednesday, February the tenth. Mm. Now, there's a problem with this. Go on. Because the only years that have um, that February 10th falls on Wednesday 
1965. <laughs> so the question is, is, is what year is this set in? So it's either 60, 65 or 71. So 65 is obviously going to be the nearest. Mm. It was shot in 66. But it might have been written with 65 or in my... You get where I'm coming from. I do, and or, I love or this Or maybe stuff. the fact that they did this on purpose to discombobulate. <laughs> so it's like, hold on a minute, February the 10th wasn't on a Wednesday, you know. They're lying yeah. to us. There must be a reason. There must be a reason. But with today's kind of attention to detail with television drama and um, continuity, you know, like in America where they have the 555 <laughs> state code, don't they? You know, these little TV-isms. Yeah. Generally, um, I think, dates are usually not just kind of plucked out of thin air. And I'm wondering if there is any special reason for this. That somebody will go, hold on a minute, February the 10th wasn't a Wednesday this year. It was a Thursday. I'm disappointed in myself to 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 reflect that I think you may be massively overanalyzing this. <laughs> but uh, at the same time, I think it's such a lovely point. We should find out if it's any... Maybe it's um, Pat Jackson's birthday or something like that for a little it tribute. Could be, it? Yeah, or, or it, it, it could, could be Jay Merrow's birthday. We should have asked her. It doesn't... I mean, it doesn't really matter in the scheme of things. No, but it's, it's, a just, it's like it's like your theory with the uh, the clock in episode mm. one arrival, the ten to the five to six or something like yeah. that. I th- there's so much going on in these episodes that yeah. you can't actually rule it out. Yes, you can imagine this some sort of the some <laughs> prop guy with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, sort of sipping on a mug of tea with half a sandwich in his yeah. mouth, kind of just uh, I don't know, Feb ten. I'll do. I'll do. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's not our universe, is it? It's it, you mm. know, if you take it as allegory, it doesn't matter at all. It's the prisoner verse. Um, there's also a lovely little moment in this, as I noticed, um, from a, a framing point of view, in the positioning of number six and Alison. It's almost like a teacher and a student. Yes. It's, it's almost like a raised dais where he's looking down on her. Yes. Because their relationship, it's very avuncular relationship, number six. I mean, yeah. you could say paternal. In- I would have said age-wise, I suppose, he had to be at least 10, 15 years older. I don't think there was... There was... Well, he was 38, wasn't he, when they were shooting? At the time. Yeah. God, again, he could have been 50. I don't know, or just a really good-looking 50. He had had the bearing of an old... I'm 46 now. 38 seems like (laughs) a a kid to me. Yeah. Um, But he had that sort of of an old man's bearing. Yes. Um, But he's he's very sort of unusually warm Mm. with uh, Alison stroke number 54. Mm. Why do you think... I mean, I've got, I've got my own theory, but why do you think they allowed Alison a name? I don't know. I was trying to, I was struggling to work out whether or not she, she's in this. She's in on this. Mm. There's this sort of confession at the end where you know, if I had my, if I had a mm. chance to do it again, but whether she's been in this from the beginning, she's, I don't know. The, in her second, I don't think, I don't think so. I, I, I think during the the, the they, course of of this episode, yeah, because she wouldn't have taken the photo. I don't think. That would have been left to to run at like a, a moment of random chance. Yeah, the fact that she's producing evidence that could actually persuade Number Six that he's not going insane. I think this is is a genuine relationship between the two of them, which bears out at the end. And somewhere along the plot, they've said to her, "You've got, you know, he will try this, but yeah, we've seen this mind yeah, reading thing of yours. You need to fake it. Yeah, we'll get you." There was. Um, I did read that in the original script, Terence Freely's script, which um, I do know that Mark Steen was a huge fan of. He mm. was uh, he was one of the, the guys who sort of, oh, I've, I've got this, and he leapt at this one. He said, this is a great idea. But initially, um, I think that the, their bond is revealed in a kiss, which was immediately nixed by uh, Patrick McGoo and said, nope. <laughs> <laughs> she can read minds instead. Um, so there was a bit, there was a bit of uh, bit of kissing going on. In fact, I also read that uh, in an interview um, that the this script they were so enamoured with this script yeah. that there was talk of actually turning this one into into, into a feature. Yes, yes, that did. Um, yeah. And McGowan was all over it as well. Uh, apparently, in Cannes, they they actually took it to Lou Grade, I think, and mm. said, "Which this this is a beauty, this one," because it does feel as an episode that there's there's some huge ideas. 
being compressed. It's not like a slight idea being mm. stretched into an, uh, an hour episode. It's it's there's some brilliant, really interesting ideas yeah. um, that are having to be almost like compressed. Yeah, it's why it works. It's such for the, a strong for the TV format. Well, just to get it into an hour. Yeah, but you can see this one. There's so much yeah. like, the idea of destroying a man's Easily identity. Be, yeah. And you could with with the act structures and mm. you, yeah, I, I can totally see that. Now you, uh, you found um, an interview with um, Terence Feely that he did, and he he reminisces about talking to McGowan yeah. about writing this. And the the quote said, um, "Look, this is a series where you can do anything you like. I don't know what it's about. The writers will decide what it's about when they start writing." Feely said, "Do you mean a kind of surrealistic television where we can get away with anything?" And McGowan says, yes, I reckon that is what I'm talking about. Ah. Well, <laughs> you can take that a few ways, can't you? Yeah. And, of course, our memories do tend to change a little bit. Yes. Because I don't believe McGowan would have said, I don't know what it's about. Yes. That's, that's uh, yeah, what, another man's Rashomon-like recollection yeah. of, a, of, a, of a conversation that McGowan probably went, I don't say that. I never said that at all. Maybe he said that just to give Feely the, the freedom. Yes. Rather than, I don't know what it's about. Of course he did. Well, he was very keen on getting writers who were who, who thought in a different way than than the, than the Danger Man writers. Mm. And he said in an interview I heard with him that whenever an episode seemed to be sort of going down a sort of a conventional route, he wanted them to sort of bend it out of shape. I mm. think it was the expression he used. Yeah, this I, th- I think this was it, it's a, an amazingly strong episode. Well, he was a great writer. Mm. Um, loads of credits to his name. The gentle touch, I think he created that, didn't he? Yeah, Jill Gascoigne. Jill Gascoigne. That was one of the first shows I remember not being allowed to watch. Right. I had to go to bed. <laughs> uh, and so, and occasionally I could hear that. I can't remember what the theme song, but it was kind of like, ah, yeah. something like that. I could hear that. And it was sort of, it was this one's for the parents only, which meant, oh, why can't I watch this? So immediately I'm intrigued. But, the, but that was like, he'd written four other shows. I think he was right at the, the, uh, front end of the Avengers when Ian Henry was in it. He was an important writer for, for a TV writer for that age. Yeah, and he, he'd also done um, shows like Callan as well, you know, with, with Edward Woodward. Edward Woodward. Um, but, but his talents um, didn't just lie within television drama. He also wrote sitcoms as well. Did he? He wrote uh, an episode of Robin's Nest, <laughs> which, which you may remember as a spin off from uh, Man About the House. Man yeah. About the House. It was, it, I think it's the only or one of the only British TV shows that has had two spin offs. I think. Two spin offs? Yeah, because Robin's Nest and George and Mildred were both of course, yeah. spin-offs from Man About the House. Porridge had going straight, didn't it? It did, but um, Only Fools and Horses had The Green Green Grass and Rock and Chips yeah. as two spin-offs. So th- that's quite rare in having... I mean, you talk about The Gentle Touch. It was, that was Cat's sp- Eyes. Cat's Eyes, yes. yeah. Which he also wrote for. Yeah. It's a nice link there. He did, but he did the Return of the Saint as well. So you can see these shows like the the new Avengers Return of the Saint. So he's been called back. I, 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 love, I love Return of the Saint. But but what I love about um, Return of the Saints is when Alan Partridge uses it in that scene <laughs> in Alan Partridge where Lynn goes to her mother's grave, doesn't he? <laughs> and he's he's playing it and he's air drumming in the car. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful moment. But yeah, just going back to Feely, yeah, shows like Bergerac, uh, like you said, Gentle Touch, Cat Size, um, and he pretty much retired after about 1992. He sadly died in 2000. Yeah, but no slouch as a, as a writer. No, it was constantly busy. Yeah, yeah, and it shows. I think I think this is. I mean, it, production wise, this is. I mean, this was the first episode that was shot uh, after Once Upon a Time. Mm. So. Uh, so where are we? I think Once Upon a Time was the sixth episode to be shot, was yes. it not? Yeah. So basically, the, what would we, I suppose we were assuming to be McGowan's uh, canon of you know the actual the seven episodes, yeah, the, the big ones with Fallout being yeah. preserved till the end, wasn't it? This is the first one. It's kind of uh, this is maybe part of the ITC. Yes. I want more. The deal. mandate for syndication. Yes. Um, which so, is quite interesting. But you can see that this is where McGowan's contractually obliged. Yes. I'm wondering if he doesn't feel that this is worth as much investment. Well, you say that, and I know there's an episode coming up that we're going to talk about where it's quite mind-bendingly evident mm. uh, that he's not 
uh, down for this at all. He's, mm. he's in a, a grouchy mood for the whole thing. Yeah, and yeah. I suspect it's because of that. So I shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Uh, this is filler. Uh, this episode is technically filler as well. It's a sort of B-side but episode. But it's a good filler. Yeah. And it also gives McGowan that great ego-rubbing, <laughs> actory thing of uh, acting against yourself. One thing I would like to talk about is uh, Earl Cameron. Yes, indeed. Earl Cameron, who um, is famous for... I mean, he'd been in Doctor Who, he'd been in various... Uh, he was quite. A, he was a very pioneering actor, and he's, uh, um, again, no longer with us, but 103. Yeah, he died not that long ago. No. Um, he wore... Do you, a little trivia, Star Wars trivia. He wore the suit... That Bosk, the bounty hunter, wore in Empire Strikes Back. He yeah. wore that outfit, that flight suit, in an episode of Doctor Who. <laughs> and they'd reused it for Empire Strikes Back. Oh, brilliant. Was, what's, what's unusual for the time? I mean, shot in 1966, mm. seeing a black person with a position of authority was very, very rare. Yeah. Um, you know, even in um, going back to Star Trek... You know, there were people complained about Nichelle Nichols being the communications officer on the Starship Enterprise yeah, yeah. in the same year. We forget sometimes, from the, the benefit of looking at something with 21st century eyes, that this was actually quite a big deal mm. for a te- TV show to show a black character in a position of authority. Yeah. So it would be p- quite progressive for the time. Yeah. It was a bit of a. I kind of. I wish they could have. He's a, he was a good actor, old mm. camera. They kind of wasted him a little bit. When uh, number two says, it's quite interesting that he mentions our masters plural. Yes. Rather um, than singular. Yeah, with stuff like this, I suspect it's kind of the writers not quite having, as we said before, there wasn't a Bible. No. Uh, and so they, they, they well, there's, uh, there's, 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 there's the number one, there's so many authority, but we don't know who it is. Yeah. So there's little things like that that are little inconsistencies. Um, there's a sort of element of, Bureaucracy. Mm. What does it? What does number two say at this point? He's kind of he, he's stuck in admin. Mm. There's that. It's that kind of uh, civil service jargon uh, in this in this episode. So I suspect, and, and there's also a later. Well, maybe we'll talk about the. Well, there's, there's another argument here. Is that you could take the you could watch the core seven Magoo envisaged episodes as the allegory. Yes. With the rest of the episodes as the spy thriller. Oh yes, I as suppose more grounded in reality. Mm. So number one isn't number one in this. Yes. Well, maybe, that, I mean, there's a reason Mark Steen would have uh, jumped out of his chair for mm. this one because he really liked it. And possibly it's stuff like that. Mm. It's like, ah, I, there's, a, there's a sense this isn't, this is slightly more grounded in the real world of espionage yeah. that I know. But, but the other thing is, in, it, with the benefit of, obviously, McGowan probably wouldn't have realised that, you know, we'd be talking about this 50 odd years later and that it would be available on home <laughs> Video and home DVD and then home Blu-ray and then on streaming services. Mm. That, you know, wouldn't have even been a consideration where people can watch this in the seven-episode order that he envisaged. Yeah. Which, if you do watch in that order, is quite nicely self-contained and is almost pure allegory. Yes. And you can watch it as allegory. And then the remaining ten episodes, the ITC episodes... Yes. ...are the spy tropes are all those elements that kind of key into what's happening at the time and what the public expect. So this is, it falls into that category, not just because it's outside of the seven, but because it contains all those elements that we're used to from shows like Danger Man and The Avengers. Yeah. You know, this could be an episode of The Avengers. But this is, you know, none of the other prisoner shows. You can't do, you wouldn't be able to do Once Upon a Time or Fallout or um, Dance the in, in an episode of The no, Avengers. No. They wouldn't fit within that structure but this episode would and so would a b and c yes the rem- the other 10 which we'll call the itc episodes <laughs> would fit into those structures yeah there was an episode uh, the, in fact the last emma peel episode was one of these where they sort of body swapped mm. with freddie jones uh-huh. uh, father of toby indeed but he was playing uh, he was he ends up playing steed or patrick Moniz. Mm. <laughs> playing somebody playing Steed, mm. and of course he's uh, he hasn't got any of uh, Steed's elegance, and he's sort of uh, yeah. So there's, there was again an awful lot of this going but on. There's also an interesting counterpoint between this episode and Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. Go on. Well, if, if you look at it from this point of view, Number Six loses identity. Yes. Or, or by seeing Number Twelve assume the role of Number Six, and everybody else is complicit within that, you know, 
idea yeah. and he starts to feel diminished. In Do Not Forsake Me, he body swaps. He has his identity but not his body. Yeah. This was almost so inverse. A, yeah, yeah, exactly. Ah. It, it, you, they're kind of interesting counterpoints to each other as episodes. One, he loses identity. One, he gains a new identity and a new reflection in the mirror. Yeah. You know, in order to, to go off on this mission that he does. But one of the underlying themes, again, the prisoner being so prescient and, and you know, hitting the nail on the head is, is the theme of identity theft. Yes. Which is prevalent today with the advent of the internet and personal data. People take, you know, cloning cards, credit cards, cloning identities to gain access to, to you know, to bank accounts and Yes, like the idea of stealing somebody's identity has taken on a completely different thing. Yeah. But in it, yeah, but it's you know, and but people generally don't help themselves. You know, um, you only have to go on social media and all these quizzes. You know, find out what your <laughs> so and so name is. What's the name of your mother? What street did you live on? What's your pet's name? You know, what's your last three digits of your? <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, this data can be collected and used and. A lot of people have the, have themselves to blame. Yeah, no. Jaws was released this day in 1975. What is the PIN number of your mobile phone? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> List a film from the year you were born. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. The day. Yeah, the actual the day. day. And can we have the, the yeah, date? Yeah, and there we are. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> My credit card is on its way. Yeah. But um, number six's position, it's taken from him. Hmm. He basically wakes up and he's on the back foot already. But you start to see him crumble as the episode progresses because he starts to doubt himself. He starts to doubt his own sanity. You know, because you don't just wake up and suddenly one day you're right-handed, one day you're left-handed. Yeah. I know it's a bit of a conceit through the side. And we see how that happens with the, with the electricity. Yes. Which, of course, is how he counteracts it. But it's the things like the um, where he goes for breakfast. He's li- like you say, lifts up the coshes. Nope. No, the bacon and eggs doesn't want that. I guess. I mean, I know he's he's, he's been re, reconfigured to really like mm. pancakes, but at the same time, who, who wouldn't want bacon and eggs as well? Mm. They look again with their breakfast. There's, there's, there's a there's a breakfast cookery book uh, waiting to be written based on <laughs> the, the prisoner cookbook because the breakfasts are so marvelous. Um, I know this is a, a side issue, but did you notice the 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 military decor of Number Twelve's apartment? Uh, no, I was I'm, at this point. I'm still looking for world and uh, global imagery when I look into people's houses. Well, we see that in number six's apartment. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of globe uh, imagery, but in number twelve's, I mean, there's there's kind of like I think it's like a Napoleonic battle, maybe a Crimean War. It's hard to tell, but it's like a battle formation of painting and all these soldier paintings as well. There's very militaristic yeah. iconography within number twelve's, suggesting maybe a military career. Curtis, as we find out, is his name. Mm. Maybe it was from a military background. But then again, you know, Bond was a naval commander, wasn't he? He was, yes. A lot of these spies coming from military backgrounds. I would have assumed that's where most of them would have been uh, drawn from. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Either that or they get the tap at Oxford, didn't they? Yeah, the King's Shilling. (laughs) (laughs) So this is the first episode that Rover is named... Yes, and he's it's, it's also he can be easily outfoxed. Yes, uh, by simply driving a mini moke away and uh, leaping out of it. So yeah. he's not quite as. Uh, and also, he's. I mean, I've, I've I noticed that in the scene where he uh, he and Curtis are both standing there, mm. and uh, Skatoic Man password, and then Skatoic Man he kills Curtis. Yeah. Thank God he wasn't standing on the other side of Curtis. Cause it's, that's a little. It's just a little bit of a conceit to move the story along, isn't it? But yeah, it doesn't really hold water. No. If they were in reverse positions and Curtis had said schizoid man, then it would have been only a five-episode uh, series with no short ending. Series. Yeah, and I'm surprised that Curtis broke so easily. He could have easily just said something else. For all his, I mean, he's he's not just no. You've done your racist. No, you've done yours. I mean, he really has, and he's 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 very much. I suppose he's got the advantage of not suddenly being the wrong-handed. But Magoon does play Curtis slightly in a slightly elevated way. He's there's a, a pompousness, a yeah. sort of cockiness, and the bit when he's lying on the um, on the bed as well. Is that just the way he talks? But I mean, it's, it's actually. A, I mean, it's a great performance mm. of it. and the, the way that number six he has a sort of 
he, when he looks like he's crumbling, yeah, yeah, he yeah. genuinely looks like ah, he's I man. genuinely don't know what the hell's going. What's going mm. on? Uh, me and Kurt, and and it's just little things. Yeah. He's not he's, he's not playing him as a braggart. Number no. twelve, Curtis, just enough cockiness and, and confidence, like an overconfidence yeah. that number six actually never really has. No. He's always kind of vibrating on the edges of some some breakdown. There's an arrogance as well about Curtis that that betrays his status as one of the wardens. Well, yes, yes. Um, which number six never really well, apart from checkmate, where they suspect him of being, which is the whole mm. kind of where the plot kind of leads. But yeah, Curtis has that arrogance, which number six doesn't really. Display. Yeah, but it, it could, is arrogant at times. But this is more of a heightened arrogance, isn't it? Yeah, and it's a, it's a, it's actually a very hard thing, I think, for an actor to to just slightly underdo. Mm. Uh, there's a real scope to completely uh, ham this up, this mm. kind of thing. Where you've got a, I've, I've, no, I have to I have to emphasise that this isn't the other guy, and he doesn't. It's just enough to make you. I mean, I suppose having the white blazer helps. I know it's it's a lovely. You can see why I think he would have got. Now ah, I'm enjoying this one. I'm enjoying making this episode. But shortly, he's uh, no hes no longer with that reused stock footage from Arrival yeah. of being smothered, <laughs> which is just, you know, that is such a great shot, but it's so overused, isn't it? It in, is. Uh, it is. Prisoner. But, of course, the final moments of that episode where he's talking to number two and he's trying to bluff, he's falling foul. Honestly, it, that old saying, isn't it? It's like stupidity. Oh, uh, it's I, I, my dad said this to us. I think once every two days. It is better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open one's mouth and remove all doubt. I think number six gets a little bit too cocky in that role mm. as as Curtis, and he, he would have been better to just shut up. Yeah, and, and just say, you know, it, I don't want to talk about I it. I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. which would be a better response. But you start to see him crumble again. That that facade. And you see number two start to kind of raise an eyebrow and, what? Yes. And he goes, ah, oh, no, it doesn't matter. There is, uh, in that exchange, when they're on the way to the, uh, the helicopter, mm. um, a little moment which is quite intriguing. Now, do you think this is uh, part of the plot, an interesting sort of lead-up to the next episode, or just a coincidence? Uh, we need to report to the general. Ah. And now, the general, for those who've seen the entire series, is a supercomputer. Mm-hmm. Much like the one in the Superman episode, 3. Fact, <laughs> Actually, not like the one in yeah. Superman 3. I'll tell you what I quite like about the end as well. So, I think by this point, obviously, he's twigged. Mm. But they still allow him. Yeah. Do you know what? I'm going to let you think you've got away with this for 60 seconds. Yeah. I'm going to let you pointlessly go up in the helicopter and then lower you straight back down. There's no sort of, let's just grab him and take him straight back to his room because he's obviously number six. That, that works on two levels. It works on a level for the audience. Mm. So the the audience think, yes, he's got yeah. a good shot. Him. Yeah. Get it out. <laughs> but it also works in a kind of um, soul-defeating yeah. way as well, that when he, that blindfold is removed, he's crushed yeah. at the end of Chimes of Big Ben. They're, they're chipping away at him Yeah, just to go... You're not, you're not Curtis. This is almost in terms of uh, episodes where it ends in a win or mm. a, or a loot or a loss, like free for all. This is almost like a draw. Uh, the plan fails. Yes. They don't break him. He's he's he, he twigs. Uh, so you know, abandon that. But at the same time, his sudden escape bid is thwarted. Yes. So it's kind of. Uh, I, well, no, I see. Yeah, I totally agree. I hadn't really considered that, but you're right. It's he. He's beaten the system. Yeah. You know, but they have the last laugh, even though they are beaten. Yeah. You know, it's it's Susan died a year ago, number six. Yes, Susan. Uh, <laughs> and and it, there's a funny thing. Oh, this, they're saying Susan a lot. I bet. Oh, don't. Like you say, shut up, yeah. shut up. <laughs> number two is Anton Rogers, a lovely, a lovely actor. Is he is he English or Scottish or fr- he was he's now, French? I know in, uh, why. I know why you're thinking he's Scottish because of um, May to December. Indeed, Alec. Hello, he was, and, I, and it was such a wonderful. Uh, See, that was quite a progressive show for the '90s, wasn't it? Because he was a man in, in his fifties, dating a woman like twenty, or getting together with a woman twenty odd years. Younger than him. Isn't that just kind of standard practice? I think it is now <laughs> in like, most soaps, yeah, but... Um, I mean, there's, it would have been more progressive for it to be the other way around, for a sort of 20-year-old, 25-year-old guy to be going out with a 50-year-old woman. 
but but I think for the for the nineteen nineties, that was quite a progressive. I mean, you'd have films like Harold and Maud, yeah, which explored that quite large age gap. But for the BBC, this is this is quite a progressive. I mean, do you, I, think, do you know I think it's a bit icky? I mean, it's yeah, it's never. It's, I never see it rep, um, uh, repeated much. Whereas no, you see Fresh Fields re- but, repeated a lot. But the thing is, uh, May to December was quite a part. I mean, it ran for five years. I, I remember a bit. I, I used to watch that with my nine a lot. Yes. Um, you might need to explain what a nine is, though. We're in Wales, listeners, uh, and a nine is Welsh for grandmother. There we are. Nine and Tide. Nine and Tide, Nine yes. And tide. From my perspective, Fresh Fields, the ITV sitcom, was probably my first um, exposure to Anton Rogers. Yeah. I'd seen, um, it, I suppose it wouldn't be a little bit rude to say possibly, but he, he somewhat thickened out uh, <laughs> from the uh, svelte, uh, stick-thin man about town that he plays in, uh, in The Prisoner. And then a lot of, he does, he's, he's one of these actors that would pop up in yeah. lots of these things. Uh, I don't think he it wouldn't you say he was a star at this point in the schizoid man, but he was a noted actor. actor. Yeah, and he didn't really have a lot of of big credits to his name. No, not at that point. He Before was, he was, I think. Would it be safe to say he's the youngest? He's one of. The, I think he's one of the youngest. I mean, he he as an actor, he started when he was about fifteen. Gracious, was, really? I mean, he was born. He was thirty three when he made the prisoner. So he was, he was a little bit younger than... Um, than Darren Nesbitt. Than Darren Nesbitt, yeah. But he'd started very early on in a film called Vice Versa, which he played a, a pupil that was uncredited. Not uh, directed by Peter Ustinov, believe it or not. That, yes, yes. Uh, but it, probably his, his first notable film was the Browning version. Was he a pupil in that? He was a pupil in that as well. Uh, and that's from 1951. So he was that with uh, Michael Redgrave? Uh, yes, it is, yeah. And so he's uh, he, yeah he's, he's going back a bit. I, I'm not sure he I, he was also quite famous. He was in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels playing a Frenchman. He was yes, uh, yes. he was wonderful to have an affair that is French to get caught that is American. <laughs> but the, I mean he'd worked with quite a lot of famous actors, quite a lot of Bond um, actors as well. But if you if you go through his his career before the Prisoner, there's not. I mean the Brown Invasion is probably one of the most famous. Films he was in, he was also in Carry On Cruising. Oh, was he? Yeah, in in sixty two, and so he was credited as young man. <laughs> so not a not a big part. No, so he's, he's not so much a guest star in the same way that Eric Portman is. No, uh, but but he'd, he'd had these minor uncredited roles. So I guess this would have actually been one of those big stepping stone moments for him. Yeah. Well, he was in This Sporting Life. Oh, was he? Yeah, and when the rugby team or no, he was restaurant customer. You see, where he, this, I suppose the, the first the first role he's going to get a name, and his name is actually number two, so it doesn't even count. But that, this is what I'm saying: is it's you know, he, he, up until three years prior to the prison, he was still a minor yes. supporting actor. Man four, yeah, man four. <laughs> you say he was an extra, hmm. maybe or, or supporting artist. Sorry, yeah, he was on still on the fringe. Yeah, three years before his performance on the prisoner. Well, he was. I think he was really good in this. That. I was watching it, and there is there's something of the David Camerons about about <laughs> yes. the way he yeah, plays yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Really, really the really charming and yeah, well, they're just really lovely to see you. And uh, you look great. Have you lost a bit of weight? I think <laughs> yeah. your skin looks He's really very really, amiable, isn't it? He's very amiable, yeah. but I'm actually going to destroy you mentally and <laughs> completely reduce you to a withering husk. Lovely to see you, though. <laughs> he was. Um... I think probably his groundbreaking role for him as a as an actor that brought him to public prominence was um, the old Curiosity Shop in 1962, where he played Dick Swiveller. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, I think that was the role that kind of brought him, you know, his first properly credited <laughs> role. <laughs> there, there were other credited roles, but um, I think that's, that's so the memorable. one that yeah. <laughs> I think that's the one that kind of brought him to the public attention. Yeah, yeah. Know. It's that Dick Swiveller. Over there, by the bar, hiding, show. running away. Well, I mean, he's he's found his métier yeah. in sitcom. Yeah. I mean, Fresh Fields, French Fields as well. Do you remember that? But uh, he'd, he'd done a lot of... Um, he was in Danger Man. Talk about hard working. But, it, again, another staunch ITC stalwart. He was in Man in Suitcase, The Saint. He, yeah, I'm sure I've, uh, I've seen him in a couple of Saint episodes, usually playing Frenchman. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, well... He's credited for one episode in 1967 playing 
Pierre. Ah. So you're not wrong. Ah, <laughs> Monsieur Templaire. But then again, in The Champions, a year later, he plays Jules. Ah. But he's not the only number two to be in uh, Where Eagles Dare. Was he? Yeah. Oh, was what? He was a German officer. Ah. So Darren Nesbitt and Anton Rogers were both in Where Eagles Dare. But yeah, Department S, um, Randall Hopkirk Deceased, various other shows. But uh, Jason King, Aww. where he played Philippe de Brion. I think that was a, a, a bit of a derivation of his initial Jules character. Well, I, th- I think he's. I think playing French characters has become a little bit of a type yeah. <laughs> for Anton. But uh, he, he, like I say, he played with Roger Moore in The Saint, a Bond. Mm. Yes. He also played with um, Pierce Brosnan in The Fourth Protocol. I, I quite, I, I quite like that film. I've got a bit of a soft spot for mid '80s Michael Caine espionage thrillers because mm. there seem to be quite a few. The Fourth Protocol was that's, one. That's quite a leap because he was he was making Fresh Fields when he shot The Fourth Protocol. Mm. He played a character called George Berenson, and also um, just before French Fields, he he made like you said, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Yeah, and he was brilliant in that with Michael Caine. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. He, was, he was. He was. A, he's one of those kind of. He, he could say without, um, without it being faint praise. He was a lovely actor. Yeah, you, you warmed to him. Yeah, um, and apparently it was like an off, off screen as well. It wouldn't surprise me at all. But there's certainly, like you say, the, the the idea of somebody that delightful being actually really quite horrible. I mean, he's got a bit of a short temper in this episode. Yes, some of it staged. But some of it really genuine. I think he properly sulks. What I find interesting about this is how much um, number two is involved with the mechanism of the deceit. Yes. Because it's like that term that they use. Is it plausible deniability? Yes. They have like the presidents, if they don't know about it, they can convince the populace that they don't know anything about it. Yeah. And I wonder how much he's actually in on in this episode and how much is actually... Yeah, there's that lovely bit ring as, uh, yes, yeah, nice idea, number 12, uh, 6. Oh, yeah, sorry, that was careless of me. Uh, which is, I mean, he's really into his character, isn't he? Yeah. There's actually a very small cast list in this. Mm. It's a, it's a, they, they don't spend a fortune on extras. And do you know another nice link? Go on. He was in The Man Who Haunted Himself. Ah. Uh, which we talked about before. You know, this is like a ballet <laughs> with choreographers. Like George Lucas said about Star Wars, it rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> there are some lovely connections with the prisoner. Yes, it it's goes. part of the fun of the research into these episodes as well. It's like one of those kind of uh, murder things on the detectives thing. Yeah. The, kind of the thing in the middle, the red string, all <laughs> yeah. leading this, all yeah. leading back to itself. It does. Ah, oh, it's wonderful, isn't it? Yeah. So schizoid man. Mm. Um, out of six. Oh, this is a hard one. Ooh. Mm. You see, I'm between four and five on this. Well, I'm going to go for a solid four. Yeah. Um, I might go with a four. Yeah. Yeah, I know, that, I, it's, yeah, it's a good four, like a B. Yeah, four's still good. Yeah, because that's yeah. exactly what it's, it's uh, as it's I said, a it's a solid episode. There's some, you know, there's some really good ideas, yeah. interesting ideas, but I don't think they had time to expand it. This would have been a really good feature, yeah. I think, if they had, if they, the, you know, it would have made sense to pull one episode out to yeah. make a feature, maybe to sort of republicise the series. This would have been a great one. Yeah. Um, but it, it is, it's like a really seriously good B side. Yeah. But it's a B side. Yes. Yeah. The prisoner wouldn't suffer if this episode was removed. No, but it doesn't. It doesn't hurt. It's no. a lot of fun. And in the scheduling as well, I think after the gloom of free for all, mm. this would have been a good bounce back. I think audiences. Yes. It's it's a, it's a highly enjoyable episode. And it's a return to the the spy form. Yes. As well, yeah. It? Yeah. Which, when you look at the the, the, the um, scheduling of the episodes, bringing these episodes, you're stretching them out so the allegory isn't. Dominant, yes, within the seventeen episode structure, you can get stuck into this one and have a really good time, and you do. It's 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 good. It's it's a it's a solid episode, mm. made all the better from having uh, Jane Merrow in it. And yes. of course, yeah. thank you very much indeed once again to Jane Merrow for taking part to be the first guest of Free for All. Yes, excellent. So, see you next week. I'm off to have some pancakes. <laughs> I'm off to have some flapjacks. They're pancakes. <laughs> 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 
You can find us on Twitter at Free For All Pod or on Facebook at Podcast Free For All. And not to be one of those begging, insistent types, but uh, like, subscribe to your heart's content. Uh, it all helps spread the word. You are our advertising budget. So thank you very much. <laughs> Free For All Podcast was presented by Kai Ross and Chris Bainbridge. The theme tune was by Gordon Milton. And special thanks to Jemima Duncar for the artwork. Please see you. you.